welcome to podcast with Frank and Caleb. I am Caleb. Hi, I'm Frank. Uh, so Frank, uh, you a you a baseball guy? I am somewhat. I always my family follows the Twins loosely. We would sometimes go to games when I was young. My dad worked with a guy who could like hook us up with some pretty good tickets, and so I remember I have fond memories of going to baseball games when I was younger. And then I had to go to one for work a year ago, and I realized that I kind of despise seeing <laughs> baseball games because you're there until midnight on a fucking Tuesday. And it is a very slow game, but it's also a very beautiful one. And one thing I really enjoy about Billy Bean and Moneyball, which is definitely jumping ahead, is that he likes to consume baseball the same way I do, which is by radio. Uh-huh. Truly the best way to enjoy baseball, I think. No, I I, I, I agree. Um I uh my I never played baseball growing up. Um, it was sort of my parents were um, uh, both grew up uh, very poor, but then sort of went to law school and sort of joined the ranks of of the upper middle class, and 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 then started you know going to the symphony and and things like that, and saw sort of American pop culture as sort of sort of ugly and below them and sort of a mark of 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 the lower ranks. And so when I was a teen and decided to rebel. My punk rock was like the most white bread down the middle things that I could do. So I started watching a lot of baseball and like professional wrestling and, uh, you know, uh, things like that. So I Hell loved yeah. I loved baseball, but of course was frowned upon. So I have I have many memories of uh, I was a Cubs fan. And whenever they would play on the West Coast, you know, the games would go till, you know, midnight, one in the morning. And so I would, I, I had a little sort of clock radio and to muffle the sound, I would put it under my pillow and, and, and pretend to be sleeping as I was wow. listening to baseball. Um, but you know, I, I, as a baseball fan, of course, I eventually teams get bad and, and when your team gets bad, there's nothing worse than watching. What awful. is your team, uh, baseball, which Chicago team are you a fan of? I'm a Cubs fan. Cubs fan? Which for for the entirety of my childhood, essentially, except for two years, were dog shit. They were terrible. So in order to sort of consume baseball in a way that did not suck, I had to find another angle. And my way of appreciating baseball was to kind of learn the stats angle. So I read Moneyball when I was probably 15 years old, and I got pretty... I mean, I don't know how to do the math myself, but I'm pretty fluent in in your your whips and your babips and your f wars and b wars and warps, and uh, I know all the stats and what they mean. But that's that's not you, presumably. No, uh, for many reasons. One, I don't have that attachment to baseball. Two, I'm terrible at math. I'm actually quite bad at even <laughs> just basic arithmetic. Um, so I really do not have the brain for those kinds of stats at all. I did want to double back. Is Sammy Sosa was a Cubs player, right? Yeah, but he um, his last year on the team was two thousand six, which was the year before I really got into baseball. So like oh, he okay, was sort so... of he was an icon for my youth. But like the first time I watched Sammy Sosa was when he was old and playing for the Texas Rangers. Got it. So you you're a fan after the corked bat scandal? Yeah, yeah, that was that. That was before my time. But, like, I know that's the thing about baseball is that you, I know everything about the Chicago Cubs. I know all of the icons. I know Ernie Banks. I know Sammy Sosa. They feel like my uncles because they've, even if I've never seen them play, 
Does your uncle chew tobacco? Uh, my, yeah, no, for sure. My, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a thing they do, <laughs> unironically. Um, no, they, they, they sort of feel like constant, if somewhat distanced presences in my life. Even if I have never watched them play, I know who they are and all their stories. And I, that has to do with the sort of inherent myth-making of baseball, which we'll get to later, I think. But baseball is, is not just of the moment it's of the moment as compared to hundreds and hundreds of years of history all at the same time you cannot think about baseball without also thinking about the past that's very poetic there's a lot of very very corny writing uh, about baseball to that effect but i think also very moving writing no i i love baseball i think it is the most beautiful game partly because it's kind of uh boring and uh not that much uh, happens on a moment-to-moment basis because it gives you that time to sort of reflect on what it is that you are seeing and what it is uh, that came before and sort of led to this specific moment. Um, no, but what I, I think one of the one of the great moments of of my life was when the the Chicago Cubs in 2016, not when they won the World Series, because that was a very stressful day that I don't have fond memories of. But the game that they won that sent them to the World Series, I, you know, got absolutely hammered and sang to myself, you know, at two in the morning and woke up all my housemates. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, Moneyball. Good Um, shit. Moneyball is not a particularly emotional book. I don't think Michael Lewis has any particular attachment to baseball and its beauty. I think, uh... It's a it's a very it's a matter of fact book, and it's only about baseball in the way that baseball reflects capitalism. The story of Moneyball is that Michael Lewis, who is is the writer, embedded himself in um, the front office of the Oakland A's in two thousand and two, and it's the story of that specific season. And I didn't read it until probably. 2010, 2009, 2010, when I was in my teens. So um, by the time I read Moneyball, I knew what the movement was. The stats revolution was already underway. I knew knew who Billy Bean was. He was already very famous. But uh, the story of of the A's is is that in 2001, the Oakland A's were one of the best teams in baseball, led by three superstars. Their first baseman, Jason Giambi, who was one of the greatest offensive players of his era, uh, their center fielder, Johnny Damon, who is a sort of speedy defense first, but very entertaining player. And then their closer, Jason Isringhausen, who is a, a relief pitcher who threw 100 miles an hour. But um, so that, that team won 100-something games. They went to the playoffs. They lost to the Yankees. And then all three of those players left in free agency So for for bigger money teams. So Jason Giambi. Free agency is sorry. Free agency is when their contract is run out and they're up to trade then or something. Yes, it, uh, when a when a player comes to the major leagues, he gets seven years uh, for for the team that drafted him. After that, he can sign with any team he wants. Um, so there's usually a bidding war. So their seven years were up. Um, so Jason Giambi signed with the Yankees um, for twenty million dollars a year, which was a lot. It's still a lot of money for baseball, but that's a lot for 2001. Sure. Um, 
Johnny Damon signed with the Boston Red Sox, which were another huge money team for seven and a half million a year. And Jason Isringhausen signed with the St. Louis Cardinals for I think five million a year. Is the seven years uh, is that typical in other sports? Does NBA have that, for example? It's you know? um, it depends on the the bargaining, uh, but no. For example, the NBA has a weird structure where it's four years, and then the team that drafted them has the exclusive right to match any offer that another team gives after that four years, and if they match that offer, the player must stay. Um, uh, and in football, I think it's four to five years, depending on where they're drafted. But baseball has the, that seven years of control is, is more than any other sport. But that's also because baseball players uh, generally, generally last longer. They don't get hurt as often as in, say, football. Sure. Or the, but that's, that's the way that, that baseball works. So they left for other, for other richer teams because the Oakland A's are not a rich team. They play in the Oakland Coliseum, which is sort of this crumbling relic of the early 1960s. Um, there's stories every couple of years of the sewage system overflowing and sort of flooding the bathroom with 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 shit, and you know bits of concrete falling from the upper from the upper decks and crushing seats. And it's you know every few years a player falls 80 or a, a fan falls 80 feet to their deaths. Because it's just, it's, the Oakland Coliseum is this sort of death trap, and it's in the middle of nowhere. And so the Oakland A's, which were this sort of proud, great team of the 70s and 80s, have sort of fallen into disrepair, much like their stadium. And they don't have much money to work with. And their general manager, Billy Bean, who was an ex-baseball player, who was once a sort of future star of the game, but who never figured it out, um has been tasked with replacing those players and getting that team back to the playoffs after losing three megastars. And that's the story of Moneyball, is how, with his limited resources, are the Oakland A's expected to compete with the financial giants of the league? And what what innovation that that pressure leads to? And that innovation was um, the statistical revolution. Um, baseball has been using, until that point, had been using the same stats for 200 years. The most important batting, the most important hitting stat was batting average. The most important pitching stat was wins. Um, that's what mattered. And what Billy Bean using, he was not the first to figure it out, but he was the first to, in a position of power, to take it seriously, was to figure out that there were other more important stats that were not being properly evaluated by other teams. So instead of batting average, he used on-base percentage, which factored in things like walks that don't go into a batting average. So instead of a player who hits 280 but walks 10% of the time effectively gets on base 38% of the time, whereas a player who hits 330 gets on base 33% of the time. And that's what he figured out. So using those stats, he was able to find players cheaply who were as productive or more productive than the players who left. And what happened that year um, is that the Oakland A's were the best team in the league. Um, after an, a rocky start, they won 20 straight baseball games, which set an American League record. Uh, they went to the playoffs, where they were promptly eliminated um, by the Minnesota Twins. And this is sort of the, the lasting legacy, I think, of Billy Bean, um, where he himself has said, 
my shit doesn't work in the playoffs. Um, he has consistently, over the last 20 years, built playoff caliber teams on a shoestring budget, but has never won a championship and has never even progressed very far into the playoffs because bigger money teams just keep beating him. And that's the story of, of the Oakland A's. It's about innovation and about pressure and about ingenuity under pressure. That's what the book is. And about how the Twins are ultimately the best team. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. They uh, ask ask anybody. Mm-hmm. I think if you put a gun to my head, I don't think I could name three Twins players, but I'm still just very ride or die on them conceptually. I think I may be able to name 20. This, Twins players? But like In history? Current or in history? Okay, maybe not 20 current. I can probably name 10 Twins players currently, and I haven't watched the Twins in a while. I have something broken Neither in my I. brain. But I, I can, I can, I can, I know the Twins team pretty well because uh, my brain is broken. Uh, but uh, they're not even in the league you follow, right? Cubs are National League, aren't they? Yep, yep. No, they're an American League team, but I just, I just know baseball. Um, so uh, yeah. the book comes out in, in 2004. It's immediately optioned by Sony. Um, and uh, first draft is written by a guy named Stan Chervin, who's, uh, who I've never heard of. And I, I did a little dicking on him, and he's, he's never made anything. He's, he's written a couple of like, children's movies that have... But, so it was sort of... He took the first pass and was immediately thrown out the window. But they have the rights to Moneyball. He wrote like Bunny Ball and Teddy Ball. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in 2008, there's real movement on this property. Uh, Steven Zalian, um, who is a pretty famous screenwriter, uh, he wrote uh, Schindler's List. He's collaborated with Martin Scorsese on uh, Gangs of New York. Um, he wrote the first Mission Impossible movie. Uh, he wrote American Gangster, the Ridley Scott gangster movie. So he's yeah. sort of this this titan of tough square-jawed american movie making but and also very prestige like yeah, uh, yeah yeah i guess mission impossible is more fluffy but i think all those other ones you named have oscar nominations and wins under their belt um but or at least for oscar contenders right uh yeah 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 but even mission impossible was that was a brian de palma movie that was you know Oh, I oh, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> it's the sexiest one for that reason. Uh, no, Stevens Alien is, but he is an icon of of that sort of like very masculine cinema. So he he takes over the second draft and he writes rewrites it. And I think the thing that's interesting about the Alien draft is that apparently it's very funny. And the way that you know that it's very funny is that David Frankel is attached to direct. And David Frankel is best known for uh, The Devil Wears Prada and Marley and Me. And so he's he's a romantic comedy guy. Um, yeah. And so he is set to direct. But he and, and Brad Pitt comes on board um, after that. But eventually, uh, David Frankel leaves to to make a bird-watching comedy called The Big Year. The Longest Year? No, The Big Year. The Big Year yeah. with Jack Black kind of a S- and Steve, Steve Martin. Martin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, have you seen no, but it is just a weirdly stacked cast for a movie about bird watching that I have no interest in watching. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But not can do you think he regrets leaving Moneyball for for that bird watching deal? I don't know about him, but I I don't regret him leaving Moneyball. Like, Moneyball's <laughs> a great movie. Yeah. That bird watching movie probably isn't. I no, I agree. Um, so Frankel leaves, which means that there is an opening. And uh, uh, Amy Pascal, who's the head of Sony Pictures, talks to Brad Pitt, and they agree that they want to work with Steven Soderbergh. 
Um, so Brad had been attached like the whole time to be Billy Bean for this movie then? Yeah, yeah. As when he came on during the Zalian draft, you know, early on, and then they got Frankel. Frankel leaves, there's an opening. Pascal wants to work with Soderbergh. Pitt has worked with Soderbergh before. They have a good relationship. They agree, let's go bring on Steven Soderbergh. So he joins up, and uh, initially it looks like he's going to go with the Zalian draft, which again is very funny. Um, and uh, he gives a, a quote, I think it was it was to some trade publication. Um, he says, quote, I think we have a way in making it visual and making it funny. I want it to be really funny and entertaining and want you to not realize how much information is being thrown at you because you're having fun. So he wants to make sort of a, seems to be like a pretty straightforward comedy with lots of information and, and, and twists and, and presumably his usual style of sort of creative editing to really make it work. So initially he gets he gets on very well with Stephen Pascal. And then the the other big update is that Dimitri Martin joins the cast, who who was briefly famous in like 2000, yeah, in this totally. period. Um, he's brought on to play Paul Di Podesta, uh, the character who would later become uh, Peter Brand. But this was uh, Billy Bean's uh, assistant GM, his sidekick, the one who actually crunched the numbers. He was the stats guy. Um, well, Dimitri Martin does a bunch of sketches that are him like drawing charts and right, like he's the yeah, one yeah, yeah. like a whiteboard on stage. But also okay. weirdly worked with like Ang Lee. He was in the his Woodstock Taking movie. Woodstock. Yeah, just well, a really I mean, a really weird period for for Dimitri Martin. But I actually think he would have been good in this. I think this this role suits him pretty well. But it uh, sounds like from this this shape of it, it sounds a lot more like it sounds from this arrangement. It sounds a lot more like the later Michael Lewis adaption of 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 The Big Short. Uh-huh. as that like fast-paced comedy that is all about cramming as much information into the jokes as possible. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that is true. But in 2009, Soderbergh kind of steps away from that angle and he decides he's going to do something else. And he rewrites, he tosses Alien script and starts rewriting it. Um, and, and the new script is, uh, it's a docudrama in which many of the characters will be will be played by themselves. So we got Scott Scott Hatterberg to join the cast, David Justice, a lot of like baseball stars from the '80s um, uh, were 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 brought on to to give interviews to sort of talk about baseball as it existed in previous eras, and then play themselves in sort of recreations of 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 what actually happened on the field. But the big the biggest changes were is that Soderbergh cuts all of the gags and the fictionalized set pieces. He cuts the jokes. And I think what sort of he realizes is that Michael Lewis's book is all about sort of the stripping away of romance and narrative from baseball and examining this this thing that we all romanticize from a purely analytical level and what a revolution that was. And so he decides to match that by stripping away his film with all of the sort of the artifice of narrative storytelling um, and is decides to take it on as, as literally as he can. And um, what are your, your thoughts on that? Cause I, I think that's a really interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, I have a ton of trust in Soderbergh. I think he just, even if his movies aren't great, they're always worth watching. So I'm intrigued enough to be, I mean, it's always the counterfactual of wondering when a really, when an, if one auteur versus another took on a project, it's always fun to imagine what their version of it would look like. Moneyball is just such a special movie, and I'm curious when Sorkin becomes involved in it, because I think he is what 
I don't love his work always, but I think Sorkin mm-hmm. does keep a lot of good jokes and does keep a certain light touch running throughout a movie that isn't really officially a comedy in any way, even if it has a lot of parts that I think are worth laughing with. Yeah, and so, let's get to that now. Um, so um, so he, he, he writes his shooting script. He delivers it to Amy Pascal for approval for his, I think it was a $56 million budget. And he tells her sort of, I know this is unconventional, but you need to trust me. I know what I'm doing. And Amy Pascal does not trust him. Five days before shooting is set to begin, she pulls the plug. Steven Soderbergh uh, quits, seemingly in disgust, um, and moves on to other projects, um, which I I can pull up. But um, he leaves the project entirely. Um, And uh, uh, Pascal, in interviews afterwards, because this was sort of a kerfuffle in the trade papers, because this was going to be a big movie. It was a $56 million budget and a big movie star. Um, But she just says... Uh, quote, we were just more comfortable with that, with what we thought was a wonderful draft from Steve Salian. So it's the Soderbergh rewrite that she hates so much. Um, but here's the thing, is that Amy Pascal does not go back to Steve Salian's draft. Instead, this is where she brings on... Uh, Sorkin? She brings on Sorkin. And Sorkin, it feels uncomfortable rewriting Steve Salian, but he goes to him and says, do, you have, do I have your blessing to rewrite? Salian gives it, Sorkin comes on the project. And he rewrites it. Specifically, he does a lot of work on the character of Paul D. Podesta, who in real life is kind of a, he's a nerd, but he played football and baseball at, at Yale. He's kind of a hunky guy, sort of in the Billy Bean mold, and sort of yeah. rewrites him as sort of an outcast, sort of nerd role. And this is where Paul D. Podesta says, I don't feel comfortable with this. I want to take my name out of the script. And so they rewrite it as Peter Brand, Dimitri Martin leaves the project, Jonah Hill comes on. So is Peter Brand just an entire, just a fictionalized person, basically? Yeah, I mean, there his his role is based on Paul D. Podesta, but it's heavily fictionalized. Yeah, Jonah Hill comes on, uh, and they're looking for a new director. They go hunting, and they go find uh, notorious weirdo Bennett Miller, who directed Capote in two thousand five to great acclaim. Uh, he was nominated for an Academy Award, but since then has spent a couple of years making music videos with Scarlett Johansson. And he says that he will only do it if he is allowed to make an an unconventional uh, sports movie. He doesn't want to play it straight. And they agree to that. And uh, then he brings on his his, uh, director of photography from Capote, Adam Kimmel in. And then Kimmel is promptly arrested for sexual assault and fired. And he was replaced by, I think this is a really interesting choice, by Wally Pfister, who is uh, Christopher Nolan's, Nolan's guy at yeah. this point, yeah. And and I think this is this is huge because I think the visual language of this film is so washed out and bleak in the way that I think Nolan's is. This is a really big move. But Wally Pfister joins the project, and finally, in July 2010, two years after this alien script is finished, shooting begins. That is the story of the pre-production of Moneyball. So should we hop into the film? I think so. I just want to say that if folks want to check out a good or what I theorize might be a, a version of what we would get out of the Soderbergh version of Moneyball that we'll never get to see is uh, High Flying Bird that he shot last year for Netflix. It doesn't have the same documentary components to it, although I think there is kind of an immediacy and cinema verite of mm-hmm. the shooting it on an iPhone yes. that comes through. 
And that is a movie that is all about the business of a sport. And is, I think also it is a really fun and snappy movie, but it's also, I think, a very, is not a romantic depiction of basketball at all. And actually it does, I think, that same ethos you were talking about of just looking at it as a business, just looking at the, the market logic that runs through it. Um, yeah, I, I think sort of the one difference that maybe you can point to is I think High Flying Bird is very propulsive. It's very kinetic. It's, I'm forgetting, Andre Miller? No, that's a basketball Andre player. Holland. Andre Holland is in, is, is in constant motion. Yeah. And that is what sort of moves the film from sort of dry set piece about business. To, sure, whereas sort of, the timetable and Moneyball is all just the season. Exactly. I But no, I, I agree. I think tonally tonally similar to i think what he had planned which is i I wonder if it sort of ate at him he is so soderbergh is is so prolific and works on so many projects that i wonder if a failed project like this sort of burrows in the back of his head and and just gets repurposed and and reworked into a new thing yeah 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 i don't know he's great though i love him yeah so Moneyball begins with uh this is the playoffs game of 2001 then yes Okay, so the, and that's the Yankees versus the Oakland A's. Basically, the point in the book, the same kind of setup to the book, it illustrates it as, well, and this is a great touch I think Ben and Miller does, is using just footage of baseball games rather than trying to recreate them on his own until the very end of the movie. It just plays better, and it does give that kind of documentary feel and makes you, it just, I mean, it, obviously it doesn't look fake because it's the real baseball footage, but it just doesn't feel fake. It doesn't feel like you're getting kind of tricked into uh, an emotion it's not about taking away the role it, and, it, and it sort of dries out some of that romanticism of it and i, I it feels crushing watching it yeah the, the I, mean, I think also using the original audio from from the the broadcast again it doesn't feel contrived it feels i mean it's the broadcaster sort of narrating the doom of the team and he knows in the moment what's happening and i think maybe you know this was shot eight years later i don't know if if a recreation could capture that same sort of that 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 specific context that everyone who was watching knew, which was that this team was doomed. Yeah. Did you catch the Giuliani like showing up twice in the footage? <laughs> I don't think I did. Yeah, he's the, they have like because he's he's just in the bleachers. They cut to him at one point, and then they cut to him on the field after the Yankees have won. Spoiler uh-huh. alert: the Yankees win that one. And but we meet Billy Bean in that scene, mm-hmm. and he's sitting in an empty crumbling stadium with a radio just clicking in to catch updates i mean it's brad pitt like he's so wonderful he's so beautiful to look at and he is also a guy who you could tell is is crushed and really stressed out at the same time uh-huh. i love it it's a great opening and it does i do the and it, let, it says out the Moneyball principle that this is the yankees that are a team that has 140 million dollars or something or more and mm-hmm. then that and that the oakland days have Thirty-nine million dollars to try to compete with them. I think that is a really economical way. Just that one chart just tells you how uneven it is. Because in a in a vacuum, baseball teams look the same. But it's only when you when you look at payroll when you see just the vast. The it's eighty million dollars. It's so much money. The A's are doomed. They never had a shot. Yeah, so they're out. And then we go to Brad Pitt meeting the owner. Of mm-hmm. the of the Oakland days, is he a big part of the book at all? Is he because he? I kind of like that he just seems to basically approve what Brad Pitt is doing um, as 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 the movie goes on. In this opening scene, he's got some skepticism though. He's not a huge part of the book. He's there, and they sort of talk about he's he's pretty cheap. 
The former owner of the Oakland A's was a big spender and was willing to take losses in order to win World Series, and they did. They won four in the 70s and 80s. But the new owner came in and decided to sort of slash. He, he treated it as, as another business in his portfolios. So it was all about sort of short-term profit, um, and so he slashed expenses enormously. So he, he is sort of in the background of, of the book as sort of a... With with a sort of skeptical eye, this is someone who doesn't really support his baseball team. And I actually think in this this first scene that he has with Billy, he comes off as a buffoon, who who actually doesn't know anything about baseball. Well, um, yeah, and the way he just admits, like he's like, "We're not a World Series winning team, and that's okay. Like we're just here for the game, and you're just gonna do it the way you've always done it." Um, which is, I I love that the first act of this movie is all just about. It's basically just high quality management conversations uh-huh. about people articulating problems to each other and making sure they understand they're on the same page about a given problem. It's like just like the best workplace meeting you've ever seen played out in a bunch of different spaces. Yeah, I, yes, but I would say this is the worst workplace meeting that you ever. Yes, because this is a manager ignoring all of Billy Bean's problems. He says you cannot have more money. He even refuses to acknowledge that there is a problem that they've lost their three best players. You have to replace them with no money that I have given you. Um, yeah. He even looks like a buffoon. Like, his office is pretty ugly. It's got, like, these harsh fluorescent lights, which sort of reappear. I want to talk about interiors and lighting over the course of this. But his office is, is pretty tacky, and it's got the harsh lighting, and he's wearing this this ugly cardigan. He. I would wear that cardigan. I actually saw that cardigan. I was like, hmm. I'm sure it's very comfortable. But this is how you know that he's also, like, a money guy versus everyone else you see in this game except for Peter Brandt is just wearing baseball garb or mm-hmm. something or, like, athletic polos. Yes. And then here's the money guy in this uh, fisherman's tie. That's not the term. Fisherman's pattern. Uh-huh. Still not the term. He's in a cardigan in the it's a wool, It's, a, it's a, uh, an ornate wool, card, wool cardigan. Very cozy winter weather. Not a weird thing to wear in Oakland. In when's the world? When's the when are the playoffs games? May? Uh, uh no, it would be November. Uh, Novemberish. God, holy shit! I do not know baseball. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the World then, Series uh, is happening currently. Just so you know. I do know. Yes, my girlfriend's a Dodgers fan. That's where she. That's her team. So I am loosely following it. Uh, as in asking her if they won the next day and then she has to look it up on her phone and tell me if they did or not. Um, so then we cut to a strong candidate for possibly the best scene in the entire movie, which is the fucking scouting team. Ugh. I... I love these guys. These... Um, we're going to talk about divorce later, but this is, I think, the best collection of divorced guys I've yeah. ever <laughs> seen in my life. And in these are people who they have no lives outside of baseball. Many of them are and and many of these are um are actual scouts, actual baseball scouts. Um that's what I was wondering because you just see some of these faces and hear the way that they are rattling these stats that it's like this is there are a few, I think, great actors in that room and people I recognize from TV TV shows. Uh-huh. Um, but so much, it's just so it's just so palpable. It's just so real. Yeah, and They're great. And I think it's been, the sound design of this scene is so good. It's sort of the low drum of just sort of scouting cliches that don't that that don't mean anything. You know, 
He's got a good body. He's got an ugly girlfriend. Strong yeah. face. Um, oh, his bat! It just pops. You can hear it <laughs> pop all in the park. And it's it's uh, it is as grating to the viewer as it is to Billy Bean, who is silently seething in the background until finally, with one, and I I love Brad Pitt in the scene with one hand gesture. He sort of sucks all of the energy out of the room and forces everyone to look at him. And this is where he, essentially, he lays out the thesis of the book in, in three sentences, um, which is, if we play like the Yankees out there, or if we play like the Yankees in here, we will lose to the Yankees out there. He, he is the only one who has identified the problem, which is that the Oakland A's fundamentally cannot compete with any other baseball team using the same methods. So they need yeah. to innovate. And he hasn't figured out how he will innovate but he knows that he has to, or that he will die. Yeah, it's a great scene. And again, it's like one of those great, this being a really good movie about management and about how people at different levels of an organization articulate their problems to each other of, uh, I should have written down the guy's name, but one of the head scouts that he's with, he asks that head scout, what's what's the problem? And the head scout's like, well, we all know what the problem is. What's the problem? You know, and uh-huh. the, the effusing or the the the... the the defusing. No, I, I, I also want to um, look him up because I think this is a great two-scene performance yeah. from him. This Which is, is a lot of people in this movie, I think. is I mean, I, th- I think just about everyone is good. Yes. A lot of people are two-scene performances. It's really just Brad, Jonah, Jonah and Phil. And really mostly Brad and Jonah. Yeah. But so, so but in, in this moment, they identify the problem. Um and and now we know what this movie is about. How is Billy Bean going to figure out how to compete with the Yankees? Is this when he he goes to Cleveland? I think so. Yeah, and then he has like he's got a great scene with Reed Diamond. Is the is that manager of or plays the manager of? I assume that's another GM, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, is this movie a good encapsulation of what the GM does generally? Um, generally, there's not as many. Um, uh, person-to-person meetings. So generally what happens in the off-season is that there is, you know, there there are the, the winter meetings, which usually happen in some, you know, strip mall in Arizona or Florida. Um, you know, they rent out a convention center and sure. they, they all meet and sort of discuss trades all together and, and sort of figure out the future of the business of baseball um, while also making trades with each other. So so I think this is an approximation of what that would be, but they just take it to what would be handled over the phone or in a giant convention center, and they just move it to another GM's office. So like the specifics of, of the scene are not realistic, but mostly that's right. He's just going to pull a guy aside and say, you have guys I want. Who do you want from me? Let's make this happen. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I grew up because the Twins GM... All of my life, basically, was Ron Gardenhire. Mm-hmm. I probably got his, his name no, wrong. No, that's, that's he's, correct. And he has his rep of just, I think he is really involved at the games, like kind of not a Billy Bean figure, like is at every game, is known to, gets like, has been thrown out of like countless games for arguing with refs and was like kind of a big asshole, I guess. Uh-huh. I think he manages the Tigers now. Uh, he just res- um, he just uh, uh, resigned over COVID yeah. concerns because he's, he's very old now. But yeah, no, but he's, he's, Ron Gardenhire's and the Twins generally were a very old school organization. They didn't buy into 
analytics until two or three years ago. Um, they were very late to to this movement. But I think that's exactly right. The, he's Garden Hire is old school in the way that um, in that first the way that the head scout for the A's is um, sort yeah. of a bullheaded divorced guy. Got it. Yeah. So this scene with Brad negotiating with the uh, Cleveland Indians is, I think it's great direction for Bennett Miller, the way that Brad is, the blocking of it, where Brad is kind of surrounded by a stable of scouts who are probably kind of a similar group to what he just had at the table that you saw him with, Mm -hmm. and how they're kind of smirking, and Reed Diamond is so rude, you know, and just very passive-aggressive. And and smug. Smug. That's the word. He's it, so smug about how little money Brad has. And I, I think it's, this is really funny that it's in Cleveland, which actually, I mean, this is true. That's This is where Billy Bean hired Paul D. Podesta. He was a Cleveland uh, guy. But I think it's funny that Cleveland is the organization that was like, get the fuck out of here. You are, you are in such a rough place in your life if someone from fucking Cleveland <laughs> is fucking down to you. Like, you just fucking jump off a highway bridge at that point. Like, you're fucking done. Yes. No. And I hope I never get talked down by someone from Cleveland. <laughs> and you get to see the Cleveland facilities a little bit, their office, and it looks nice. They have a nice office, you know. Yeah. Their um, the GM's office is much nicer than Billy's or is or even his owners. Um, the scouts aren't sitting around a sort of middle school lunchroom cafeteria table. They, you know, they have cubes and and computers and like they, they seem... don't all work in a basement. It looks like there's some natural lighting in the building somewhere. Yes, but this is this is what a real organization looks like with real investment yeah. in not just players but also also in the GM's resources that Billy sort of kind of seems to be looking wistfully at until he spots Peter Brand and then he makes a beeline. Yeah, Jonah Hill, great in this movie. Yes. And I think I think great in this sequence too when when he's being he's just killed a trade um, by shaking his head at at Cleve at the Cleveland GM which which Billy notices and um, Brad Pitt here is a evil bully he walks right yeah, up he just threatens him at his own desk <laughs> and he's like who are you what are you doing um, and Jonah Hill is I think plays this perfectly he. He looks like a 24-year-old straight out of college who's in way over his depth, uh, who is now being threatened by the hottest, scariest man in baseball. Yeah, he's threatened by a jock, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. But he sort of, he lays out, he's unhappy in Cleveland, he doesn't get listened to enough, he has big ideas, and, uh, and Billy Bean pulls him into the parking lot to explain these ideas. Yeah, so maybe... One, I think the strength of this movie is that it doesn't go too deep into the math of yes, it. Yes, I agree. Maybe it, let me just kind of let me do a stab at explaining uh-huh. the the shtick of it and see if I've got it right. You have to buy you buy wins is the idea. So if you spend your money not to just buy a great player, but to figure out how they're going to fit within the team and to just and to buy outcomes. Yes, that's that's mostly correct. And I should say this is only the first wave of Moneyball because really what it's all about is identifying inefficiencies. But in this first wave in 2002, this was the big stat. Um, this is what broke the Oakland A's, was take the ability to take a walk. Um, and that's what Peter Brand identifies. It's not the, it's, and I think this is important because it's not the sexy thing of swinging the bat 
and yeah. making great contact and you know hitting the ball over the all over the place it's the extremely unsexy thing of just knowing where a pitch is going to go and being willing to just let of just standing and holding your bat close to your of being inert and know? yes of being inert in. and letting the other team make a mistake and that that is what that's that's what these two realize is the secret to winning it's not taking action but in fact letting letting the the other team um do too much and i think this it's it's it just this is coincidental that it, it was a walk that that was the key to this but i think it is central to the the ethos of moneyball which again is um identify the other the mistakes made by other teams and capitalize on that um but that's what it is uh, taking a walk after this meeting in the parking garage billy bean hires scott he hires peter peter brand yes pete and then they pete they hire pete brand and they identify together the first player that they should try to invest in which is chris pratt scott hatterberg yes so um Scott Hatterberg was a, um, a catcher and over the years catching takes a real toll on the body, on the knees and in Scott Hatterberg's case on his elbow um, to the point where he couldn't throw to second base anymore. He just, he didn't have, I mean, he could throw, but he just didn't have the arm strength to do it anymore. And he was not seen as a valuable enough hitter to overcome the fact that he couldn't play defense um, at his chosen position. So essentially, he's out of the league until Billy Bean realizes that we have an opening, not at catcher, but at first base, which doesn't require much throwing. And they go and they meet Scott Hatterberg in his home. This is one of my this is one of my nightmare scenarios that happens in movies all the time is where unexpected house guests <laughs> or my house is always so messy. And every time I invite someone over, I have to clean it up for a long time and it still just looks like shit. And there's crumbs everywhere. But the so the idea of someone just knocking on my door to discuss a business deal and I have to let them inside and host them is uh needs to say if I was Scott Hatterberg I just would be like hang I would just be like nope sorry moneyball someone else I think it's also key that this is on New Year's Eve they're watching the countdown on TV and presumably at like 11:30 p.m. and they just show up to his house this is yeah inappropriate behavior by Billy Bean for reasons that I think will be explained in 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 like 15 seconds but um so they they lay this out they tell scott hatterberg they're not he's not gonna play catcher they're gonna play him at first base which is a position that hatterberg has never played before and here i think this is a wonderful performance um i'm forgetting his name but ron washington who is the oakland a's bench coach which is sort of the second place coach um got it who is who is famous for teaching infield defense he's sort of a maestro uh, Billy Bean says it's uh, it's it's okay. Wash is going to teach you. It's not hard. Tell him Wash. It's incredibly hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is the delivery on this joke. I think is so funny, and I think and and Ron Washington is sort of beloved in baseball as being like one of the nicest people in the world. Um, and I think this is a great a great encapsulation of him. Um, but this is where Chris Pratt's daughter. Um, runs onto the screen and and interrupts 
the message, and it seems to really take Billy Bean by surprise. He doesn't seem yeah. very happy about it. Um, and Scatterberg asks if he has kids. And Billy Bean, for the first time, we're now 28 minutes into this movie or whatever, reveals the fact that, yes, he has a daughter. Um, and it's and here I, I want to jump back to the Zalian draft um, because uh, in Zalian's uh, script, there is an early scene in which Billy Bean is on vacation with his wife, um, a Caribbean vacation, and gets a call that a player is available and flies away from his vacation to go crash this player's son's bar mitzvah in order to, you know, to vainly pursue him. And I think in this alien draft, this is like sort of classic great man. He has no time for anything else. He is consumed fully by his work. And guess what? He got divorced. Here in, in the Sorkin draft, Billy Bean is already divorced. And I think this sort of contextualizes all of his behavior and mannerisms and sort of the behavior and mannerisms of everyone else in that front office. These are people who flock to baseball and flock to this, again, ugly, crushing environment because they have nothing else. Billy Bean yeah. is a, he, he doesn't have good social interactions and is generally an intense person, essentially because he's very sad and feels powerless and has had nothing to work out. And he, he sort of, he's constantly seething and looks like he's about to scream in impotent rage constantly. And I think that what, what Sorkin really hits on is that that is central to Billy Bean's character is that he is, he is, he is impotent. He is, yeah. he's lacking power. Um, to his credit. I mean, and he's very sensitive and nice with his daughter and with, uh, and with his ex-wife. So I think uh, this is the next scene. And I, uh, here we meet his, his ex-wife played by, um, Robin Wright. Robin Wright. And her, he's, she's great. And never her, just a great two scene performance in this movie. Yes. And I think an even better one scene performance, her new husband, Spike Jones. I didn't realize that was Spike Jones. Yes, it is. Oh and I think, God. I think this is brilliant. So we see Spike Jones's house, and I think it's pretty clear that he's kind of like a, a tech exec. He's got a sure. beautiful home. It's streaming with natural light, as opposed to, you know, Billy Bean kind of lives in a bit of a dump, and his office sucks. But his his wife's new husband is a really nice guy, but doesn't know baseball and clearly doesn't respect Billy very much, um, uh, or doesn't really know what Billy does. And he's he's wearing these Birkenstocks. Um. Yeah, it's a total. It's a Birkenstock. She goes from a, a, a tennis shoe husband to a Birkenstock husband. You know. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, they're both like Robin Wright and Spike Jones are both wearing just like flowing kind of canvas clothing that's uh -huh. like just like elegant and comfortable. And Billy Bean is in a fucking tracksuit. <laughs> and and Billy Bean is there to pick up his twelve year old daughter to have a little a little dad date with her. And it sort of realizes that his um, his wife and her new husband are kind of cutting him out of parental decisions. They've bought yeah. her a cell phone without because because again, Billy is sort of lacking in in power over over this relationship. But he actually does have seem seems to have a great relationship 
with his he daughter. has a great relationship with his daughter like because she's interested in music and he's just like so supportive of her and doesn't have there's no like there's no just like trite bullshit of like oh they like recite baseball stats to each other or like you don't have like some dumb shot of her with like a glove or a hat or something like mm-hmm. he, he is totally just meeting her where she's interested in and on her terms and Brad, part of what makes Brad, Brad such a great actor is how good he is with pretty much anyone next to him on screen. Uh-huh. He's great with kids. He has like wonderful chemistry with this with this child. Yeah, and they, I love this scene. They go shopping um, uh, for guitars, and I again, I think the lighting here is important. It's there's a lot of natural light here, and the sunshine is sort of pouring through the glass windows of this guitar shop, and it just it just seems nice. And she plays him a little song, and she sings it. And it's a sweet little song. And I gotta be honest though, I, I'm glad I have never worked in a music store. Every time, <laughs> almost every time I watch these movies, I, I always associate with like retail people in uh-huh. the background. And like, can you imagine just like just trying to like get you know, like 20 minutes to lunch break and just like some fucking 12 year old is singing to her dad, and you're just like, you can't you can't say anything mean, otherwise you miss out on the stat sale, and then like you lose that commission or whatever. It's oh, but it is a nice song. It's a sweet moment. And, and I think this is the first time where we see Billy in a mode that's anything other than, like, pure desperation. Um, where he seems to, like, be fully devoted to this specific moment and watching his daughter play guitar. Yeah. In the way that otherwise he's always sort of thinking either about the past or the future. Either his past failing or his future despair. But in this moment, he's fully in the present. And I think this is a, a great moment. Um, yeah, nothing to add. It rules. It's tender. I think one of the things that baseball and sports movies run into is, I think every sports movie has a central argument that you prove your, you, you have virtue and you have goodness and that somehow baseball will always like reward that virtue and goodness in terms of just like a win. And we'll get into it. That is not what this movie is about. And these scenes where, where Brad Pitt is so tender with his daughter doesn't turn into him proving or not being able to prove something on the baseball field. It's just a complete empathetic portrait of a guy. Yes, I agree. Are we are we into his flashbacks yet about his own baseball career? Yeah, I think I think we we get the first the first one in in his meeting with his scouts where head scout comes and says, "This is about your shit, isn't it?" And we get a flashback to um, but there's there's they're interspersed throughout the movie, so you don't. But I think now, I think roughly around now is when we're getting a full scope of of his failure as a baseball yeah. player. So we learn that Billy Bean's background is that he himself was a great baseball talent when he was young. They use the analogy, or not the analogy, but the descriptor of a five tool guy. So can you can you name me very quickly the five tools? Catching. I'll I'll give it to you. Defense, yeah. Offense. Uh, you split it. What the fuck is that? How can you have defense and not offense okay. as a tool? The five tools, hitting for average. No, no, no. We gotta keep. We gotta keep. We gotta keep okay. the game. Going. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you have catching and offense. That's what you've gone with. Catching. Yeah, I'll just name five and then we'll see how. I, okay. Catching, okay. offense, throwing, running, sliding. Okay. Like being able to slide into the base. You kind. You got. You got a couple of them. So the five tools are hitting for average, so how often you make contact, hitting for power, how often you hit dingers, okay, uh, running, 
uh, defense, so catching, glove work, uh, and uh, throwing. So you, you got, uh, I'll give you three of the five. Three out of five? Not bad. I'm a, th- I'm a three-tool player. Three-tool three player. Tool, I'm a three-tool guesser. But So this is where we learn the sort of primitive way of evaluating players. It's It's not based on stats. It's just based on five kind of sort of arbitrary uh guidelines that you you can you can kind of see where the holes in them are well if he and runs they're quite subjective if i'm not i mean i know that they're not entirely subjective you could still kind of mathematically point to a better catch versus a worse catch but like you actually most, actually like, you can't okay great okay so billy bean is has been fed this kind of line by these scouts by the scouts logic yes by the kind of artisanal way of doing baseball that you are this star, you have all this great skill set, and he rejects an offer to Stanford to go play for the Mets in their draft. Yes. Um, and so, being, so he played for the Mets for seven years then, is his backstory? No. So the what happened was, is that, so he was this, he played in the minors for, for a couple of years and was a pretty middling player he he never hit that well in the minors but he they all the Mets always had this faith in him that he's going to figure it out because he's a five tool player he's this good yeah. we drafted him in the first round we'll have we have to give him a shot and he um he comes up to the major leagues um with the Mets and is terrible he's one of the worst players in baseball and send, spends the next five-ish years bouncing between the high minor leagues and the major leagues being terrible. So he played for the Mets for a couple of years. And I think was either cut or, or traded to the twins and he played for the twins for a year and again, couldn't hit and was cut and then was sent to the A's um, where he, after a particularly terrible game, he uh, went up to his general manager at the time, Sandy Alderson and uh, told him I'm retiring give me a job. And so over the course of his major league career played in something like 150 games, which is less than a full major league season. He was a over, over the course of, I think five or six years. So he was a bad player, but so he, he quits immediately after a game goes to a general manager and says, I want to be a scout. Um, And what the book posits is that this was, he wanted to be a scout because he wanted to learn how they got it so wrong. Do you think that's fair? Um, that's not quite the that is not the read I think you get from the movie. It's a lot more like it's a lot more bitter from him, and I think there is an element of we'll get into it with the market logic of it and just talking about how much of this movie is about just labor and how you like relate and use your labor. Mm-hmm. But it does it is a weird arc to go from. I was treated poorly as an employee, so my move is now to go be a manager and join the join the ranks above me. I don't think it was I was treated poorly. I think but I I do think he was told he would be great and realized that he was mediocre. And I think part of him wants an explanation for not for why he wasn't great or why didn't they make him great, but why didn't they recognize that he was mediocre? And maybe how he can recognize that people are mediocre and sort of spare those people his sort of anguish. Because he is not a happy. He's not happy. Um, and in his baseball sequences are excruciating. It's 
Um, and I and I think they're they're cut in a way where you see him, you know, just take pitch after pitch after pitch and strike out and break his bat over his knee and you know destroy Gatorade. Uh, uh, the stand, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, and yeah, this is part of why this movie is such a good sports movie is that it's such a bad sports movie because uh-huh. when it does have this is maybe the first playing montage and we're already 45 minutes into the movie and we haven't we've barely seen any baseball get played that wasn't on a television screen uh-huh. and it's just watching a very good Brad Pitt lookalike strike out again and again yeah no I I I agree but no I, I I think it's a little more this is a movie that's mostly not about baseball and I think his failures are, or, or his perception of failure I think is also mostly not about baseball in this movie. I think it's mostly about the divorce, but it's mostly figuring out a way to deal with a pain from the past without being consumed by it, by looking for, for a way out. And then again, but I I do think that Billy Bean and a part of why he is so receptive to saber saber metrics, I think is one of the other names for the money ball system. That is correct. uh, Is that, there is a desire to get a revenge on not on the institution of baseball, but on the romanticism within it. And how he, yes, that, that kind of language of the five tool player and this, what is a really softly lit kind of romantic moment of the scouts being, telling him and his family, what a star he's going to be. I think Billy Bean does desire revenge on that, on that moment. I think so. No, I think that is correct. So I would, now we're into the early drafting and negotiations and the friction between Peter Brandt and the old school scouts in the yeah, system. Yeah. So here we we um, we get the other two names of the three players who are going to replace the three stars who left, uh, and the three players are Jeremy Giambi, who is his younger brother, the younger, less talented brother of the iconic Jason, and David Justice who is one of the Yankee players who beat them last year and is a former star, but is now old and faded and he can't run anymore. And um, this uh, this leads to some friction. Uh, and I, I think this is a another... Um, there's there's a lot to be said about uh, eating in, in Brad Pitt performances, but I want to kind of like talk about the moment where Brad Pitt is... is writing something on, on a whiteboard and he sticks a pen in his mouth and spits... And spits, spits it out. out the jab. And I and again, I, I kind of want to talk about like uh, Brad Pitt's performance, which is so uh, so physical and tense, and he's constantly looking for release. And this is like kind of sticking things in his mouth and sort of swallowing them and eating them. And that's sort of one way that he can assert power. He's he's like a tiger that's pouncing on something. And in this case, he's pouncing on this marker and he's pouncing on the scout. Um, yeah, and the part where he deep throats an entire baseball bat in that scene <laughs> is just, just, and he just chews through all the wood and then just spits out a bunch of splinters in the wall. I, they and they did that in one take. Apparently, he swallowed an entire baseball bat in one take. I look, his dental work is. I, I mean, it was a, a key part of his salary negotiations was was, yeah. was dental insurance. Also, uh, re- reconstructive surgery when he had to shit out an entire baseball bat, <laughs> dislocated his spine. 
Look, you joke, but I actually think like his mouth is doing a lot of work in this movie. Always does. I wish it would do work in my movie of <laughs> Life with Brad. Um, but um, uh, no, the scouts don't like Jonah Hill. They don't know him personally. No, how could they? I mean, he's this like nebbish little dude with a suit who is telling them that their way of doing things and this what they see as a very artistic and romantic way of doing the business is is useless and he says that none of them matter and i i think bigger than that he the thing not just the thing that they do professionally but the things that they clearly again these are some divorced ass dudes the people who have dedicated their entire lives to making long drives between minor league stadiums in middle america you know 18 hour work days um these people have dedicated their entire beings to an art and some Yale guy is telling them that they don't matter and that nothing they have done has ever mattered um, and that they're all fools. Um, yeah. In so many other baseball games, Peter Br- or in baseball movies, Peter Brandt would be the bad guy. No, I, I agree. This is a pretty dark path that there's, that they're going down. They're, they're cutting the romanticism from baseball and how can you do that? But they do it. They sign three guys. And uh, is this where we meet um, uh, Philip Seymour? Oh, oh, it is. It is certainly where we meet him. I almost did not recognize him for the first few seconds when he... I, I did not recognize him for the first few seconds when he's on screen. Uh-huh. He looks like he teaches like, a shop class in Wyoming or something. <laughs> yeah, his, um, his buzzed head. Uh, yeah. And he's got thick forearms. I, I think he probably just did like forearm curls for like six months leading up to this movie um yeah he's got these just kind of rolls in his neck that you've never seen before he he looks like shit in the best way yeah and this is so he is the manager of the oakland days the on-field manager the one who puts together lineups um and chooses pitchers and things like that and he's working on a one-year contract which he takes as a lack of faith well, and I love that. And as the and as the movie goes on, and you see how vulnerable a lot of these players are in the contract system, and how expendable they are, I do love how the movie posits that there's another sort of echelon of workers in the in the uh, MLB that are the scouts and are the 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 coaches and managers, and how they're also under they're also quite expendable. Mm-hmm. You know, so, it's that, it's a precarious that, system for everyone. But yeah, no, there's there, and there seems to be not just professional tension, but a sort of interpersonal distaste between Billy Bean and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I love this sequence because these are two um, big, scary alpha dudes, essentially going nose to nose and staring each other in the face. Um, and we don't get resolution yet, but what a sequence! What a performer! Yeah. What an actor! They've got their team assembled. Now we are at the opening game of the of the first season. Yeah, and and we see. I think it's the Edge playing the national anthem yeah. on guitar. And I just want to say this movie. It's it's nice to get a reminder that this is two thousand and three. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I laughed so hard <laughs> that the Edge was out there uh, doing his thing, and all the military people like unfurling the flag to. The Edge on guitar. <laughs> Just like, man, I nearly fucking died for my country for this. No way. <laughs> yeah, um, but 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 the season starts, um, and and I think this is I think this is where it's concretely revealed that 
that Billy Bean doesn't watch. Yeah, he doesn't watch the teams play. Uh, he has his reasons for it that he gets into about that it makes him have a more detached view and that he can he can he can trade players and he can treat them more like workers that he can, and commodities that he can move around. But it's also just clearly way too painful for him. He clearly finds watching baseball excruciating. Yeah, and we um, we see when when he leaves uh, the ballpark to go work out during the baseball game, and he turns the he turns the TV off and also points it away from him, and then works out like a maniac. And it feels like an act of self-flagellation. It's 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 not just that he doesn't like baseball or he wants to keep it, it different. It seems like he he still tortures himself every day that baseball never worked out for him. Um, yeah, I mean, how could he want to watch these games? Like, it's a it's a sport that he did not do well at himself, and then is managing a team that is also not doing well at. Yes, um, but I and I think the other crucial thing that we have here, and we we finally introduced to Philip Seymour Hoffman, is in the first game of the season, Philip Seymour Hoffman is not playing the team the way that Billy Bean wants him to play. Um, he's starting Carlos Pena over Scott Hatterberg and. And we don't know who Carlos Pena is, but what's important is is that he's not Scott Hatterberg. Not Scott. And this leads to some friction because over the course of the first couple of weeks of the season, Carlos Pena continues to play over Scott Hatterberg, and Philip Seymour Hoffman continues to thumb his nose in this war of egos with Billy Bean. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Not really. I think it's um, only to note that it's part of Billy Bean's character that he doesn't see these baseball games, but also we, the audience, don't watch the baseball games happen, which I love. Again, it's just, it's this movie choosing to be anticlimactic when other sports movies would be mm-hmm. climactic or to make it or what to sort of focus on. We, we do see the time... results, though. We see that we the see team is losing, losing games. We didn't lose, but there's no little, like, there's so little play time, you know? There's not, there's, we don't see... Uh, we don't see the team play. We spend more time in the in the basement of the stadium than on the field of it. Uh-huh. Which is, because that's what the movie's about. It's all about the subterranean, about money and all the workers who go into making a baseball game happen and is not interested in the spectacle of it at all. Until, I would say, the very end or until when things start going well for them. Which isn't for a long time because this team is playing badly. Mm-hmm. And, and here uh, we start... We start getting rumblings that, that maybe Billy Bean might get fired. Um, yeah, well, and I love this component of it is the use of the of the talk radio about sports. Mm-hmm. I assume is probably all just taken from the time. Uh, or maybe it's, it's re-recorded, but it's, I, I'm sure it's honest to what the chatter was like at the time. Yeah, this was seen as as in not just a weird experiment, but an, an embarrassment to the game. Um, and I, I think there's especially, um, there's, there's some, uh, a couple of clips from, from broadcasters who are former players who are really incensed at Billy Bean. You know, you cannot reinvent the game of baseball. You know, this is a sacred object and to try to change it is, is not just bold, it's sacrilegious, um, and can only end with one result, which is the complete collapse of the team that tries and the firing of anyone who encourages um, those changes. Yeah, I I found those scenes weirdly comforting right now because there is 
there's just so much punditry right now and people wanting to extrapolate and just create airtime out mm-hmm. of any anything they can grab onto to observe about. And so watching Brad Pitt and you, and you feel it in the movie that it's hurting his person, that it is, it is exhausting for him, but knowing that it is just hot air and how much of an industry and a, and a environment there is to just, even in sports and now in, in, in every facet uh-huh. to just produce content and hot air and useless podcasts on any given topic. Hey, watch yourself. Yeah. Well, we're not useless yet. Because we're not useless. Uh, we're not. We're not live yet. We're not live yet, so we can edit out things like that. God, can you imagine if we had the fucking live stream this? <laughs> oh, it sounds exhausting. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's all I wanted to note on is the hot air and the chatter, and it's and it is hurting Brad Pitt. You can tell he's really fucking stressed out about it. But it's this great contained performance where he isn't. He has very few blow up and yell at people moments. It's just watching a dude just collapse into himself, kind of. I want to talk about um, Billy Bean driving in parking lots. And I, again, I think this, this, like, this impotence where he clearly wants to just gun it at 170 miles an hour and just release something. But he is in a parking lot and he can only go in a circle. And probably, and and so he's just like doing wild things skids and he's probably going about 21 miles an hour um but again he's he um he feels like he is imploding um in every moment of this performance um and is like barely barely keeping it together but not in a um not like uh not in an uncut gems like adam sandler kind of way of imploding where it's like manic energy that he's pushing outwards i think it all just like going back into his core and in his frame. He's and... he's he looks he's like the hottest hunchback you've ever seen. Yeah, you watch him. You know, you, you wa- you're watching him develop like stress warps in his own bone structure as the movie goes on. Practically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, finally, uh, I think we finally see Brad Pitt explode after a particularly harrowing loss. He uh, is walking by the the locker room of his team and he hears them uh is they're playing music they're dancing like they're having fun after having been just crushed in another for their 25th time in a row or something and finally we 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 finally get to see brad pitt snap and it is terrifying when he does it um he grabs a bat he smashes the boom box he uh Jeremy Giambi is in a state of undress already but Billy Bean really dresses him down and and implies that he is a an unserious person undeserving of the great privilege that he has been given and uh and uh and again much like his his scene with the, his first scene with the scouts just sucks all of the air out of the room and you see how powerful that he he is in a movie where he is mostly expressing abject powerlessness. We get little brief moments um, that Billy Bean is a bit of a tyrant, um, and I think I think that is kind of an important part of his character um, is that he is yeah. he is he has a capacity for cruelty. Yeah, well, and it sort of is the. 
we were just talking about how the Steve Zaylor script has him as more of a great man of history and sort of this extraordinary dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Billy Bean did pull off a really important paradigm shift in baseball. And unfortunately, you kind of need to have tyrants to pull off those paradigm shifts for good or ill, I think. Um, I agree. And because those are the those are the only people who are going to not care about what everyone else is saying that they're doing wrong. And there's a lot of ter- tyrants who have no paradigm shift that they're doing. They're just tyrants to be tyrants. <laughs> this isn't me defending people being dicks or whatever. But for a, a major shift in how an organization conducts whatever business or whatever activity it does and to reshape an industry, those are often super hard-headed people. Uh, they kind of have to be, I think. So um, I think this is like a perfect moment to sort of jump to the castration of Philip Seymour Hoffman at the trade deadline when Billy Bean reasserts using this moment of rage to reassert control over his team and over his life. Um, Yeah, he essentially fires everyone or trades them away so that Philip Seymour Hoffman has no one to put on first base but Steve Hatterberg. And I I think I think it's he he makes um uh he makes John Hill do it. He he muddies up his his perfect clean boy, um, who his his nice friend who doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings and yet is uh so adamant in his belief in his uh superiority to them in Jonah Hill, and he finally forces him to come to terms with what he's actually doing which is disrupting a system upon which people's lives depend. Um, so he trades Carlos Pena um, and then calls Philip Seymour Hoffman into a meeting and then uh, trades Jeremy Giambi right in front of his face. Yeah, a wild power move. This, and and I, I think this is... Uh, this is a, a great sort of silent scene from Philip Seymour Hoffman, just watching his face as he watches what he believes is his career um, sort of be stripped away on what he, what he sees are the insane whims of a desperate man. Um, this is, I love, I love this sequence. I love this scene. And and finally, this is the one we we finally see after the two have gone nose to nose several times. Billy Bean is the one who emerges. Um, and and Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, uh, humiliation is only compounded um, because the team starts to win, and I think is in one of the funniest jokes of of the film. We get a montage of of victories. Um, and uh, in one of the broadcast broadcasts that it, that's included in the montages, and and credit to Philip Seymour Hoffman who has done an incredible job managing this team. He is the yeah. one who is responsible. Um, yeah, and I love this moment. The this Hoffman who has been completely emasculated by his boss now has to pretend that uh, in fact this was his idea all along and uh and be celebrated for the thing that he despises um at his very core 
Yeah, and I the movie doesn't particularly wrap up or conclude really well how Philip Seymour Hoffman's character actually particularly feels about it, you know, because also and because Billy Bean has won and basically sets a momentum that he has to go forward to. But uh, I don't know if that manager stayed with the Oakland days or the. Uh, I actually do have some information about that. Um, He was really, he did leave the team after the year and was really, really upset by his portrayal, both in um, the book and the the film. He he thought that he did his best to sort of work in a system that he didn't fully understand, but, you know, did his best to work with Billy Bean and thought that, uh, and it was only through the book and the film that he he thought he really recognized Bean's disdain for him. Um, and and so it, it's clear that, uh, and more indication that, that Bean is not a very nice person. Um, but we don't really, and we, we see that in, in, the, in the film with the delight he takes in, in sort of stripping Hoffman of his power. Um, but full fuller context, sure. Billy Bean, not a great guy. Um, so do we do we want to talk about the streak? Yeah, the streak, which I liked. You know, I don't have a lot of notes on it in my in my from the movie because I was mostly captivated by it. I thought it was really gratifying after probably ninety minutes, or at least at the very least an hour ten, probably mm-hmm. of watching this baseball team fail. It was really gratifying to see them succeed. Um. I, so I, I watched this, I watched the movie with my roommate who hadn't seen it before. And in the middle of the, of the montage, um, he kind he turned to me and he said, you know, I hate how sports movies do this. They sort of invent stakes that don't really exist. Um, because the streak is, it has nothing to do with the playoffs. It's just that the Oakland A's have ripped off 19 straight wins and are going for the 20th and i love this montage i agree it's completely captivating i love the editing of it i love the use of music um but over the course of the streak as they win more games you hear broadcasters of the time compare the oakland a's to teams of the past you know 1927 yankees the greatest team that was ever that was ever constructed the murderers row um the 19 i think 48 a's who won 19 in a row and sort of and what I kind of what I want to talk about with with this streak and with baseball and with this sort of mythologizing of the past, I think unlike any other sport, baseball is inherently nostalgic. Because um, when you think about baseball, at its core, baseball's structure is the at bat. It's it's one batter facing one pitcher and the outcome of that matchup, and it has been that way since it was its invention in 1871 and the specific rules around it have changed but that is the basic structure of the game and the outcomes of that one thing have stayed the same the best thing that a batter can do is hit a home run and the best thing that a pitcher can do is strike the batter out and those two things have been the same for literally hundreds of years. The best that anyone can ever do playing baseball is recapture the greatness that someone has done in the past. The yeah, promise of professional... Well, I think it's so, 
it's, and it's so wrapped up in all these personal records because even someone who doesn't follow baseball like me still knows uh-huh. like Barry Bonds has the most home runs and that's a bigger deal because he took the mantle from someone else. And I don't think that those mm-hmm. stats exist as much for, and there's definitely less things to measure and measure in like a soccer game or something where it's like this guy has, I suppose you'd probably have the biggest like school goalkeeper or something or, but, but I, I think like the, the promise of other sports like soccer or basketball or football is sort of the, the potential for, to see something you've never seen before. It's a, a feat of athleticism that just knocks your sock off, your socks off. Um, and that's just not true of baseball, where, again, the best thing that you can ever do is not do something you've never seen before, because you've seen everything before. There are only so many things that you can do. The very best thing you can do is be as good as someone who used to do the thing that you do. Um, and so in this sequence, when they're comparing the Oakland A's to teams that came before, this is why... I think I found it so exciting. I think the championship is overrated. The best thing that you can do in baseball is be held at the same level as a great team of the past. It's to become your own legend. Yes, exactly. Um, And, and I think this, so, uh, you know, my, my friends felt like this is so contrived. They're sort of comparing this team to, um, to other teams without real reason for doing so. But I actually think that is the dream of, of baseball is to, is to have that happen. And that's why I found this sequence so moving and why I find it's ending so exhilarating. Um, have you been to Cooperstown before or the baseball hall of fame? Yes. Yeah. I went as a, when I was younger and I think it really does fit in with your, thesis about baseball being so nostalgic because i know other sports have hall of fames and there's you can collect memorabilia from anything but it's the baseball hall of fame is by far the the best of those right and certainly the most iconic and like it's all about preserving the history it's all about uh grabbing onto these whatever scrap you can of 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 greatness or whatever legend you can find an artifact for. No, I, I, I agree. And I, I, I've been to several Hall of Fames. You know, um, I've been to like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I think is, and and I haven't been to the NFL, but like- I, I, I've been to a Hard Rock Cafe, so essentially the same thing. <laughs> but there are, and, and I mean, of course, they're, they're kind of all structured the same. They, you know, instead of a, a, a guitar that Jimi Hendrix used, it's a baseball that, that Babe Ruth did. But I think the one thing that sort of elevates baseball above the other Hall of Fames is the room where all of the plaques are of all of the players who've been inducted. been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Exactly. And it's just, you know, floor to ceiling. And there's just so many. And you you can get lost just like looking at these essentially near identical bronze plaques with, you know... um, just information about these careers and i i do i i saw it when i was 13 or so and i i it was immense and overwhelming and kind of moving that there's and i that i don't think has been matched by other hall of fames that like baseball is so defined by history and you know that as soon as you walk into the plaque room it's just momentous and i think that's what this montage captures is 
putting this this great run of play, which Bob Costa says in in his voiceover that is completely random, but in its complete randomness, it is the most beautiful thing because it is it's it's history. Um, but Billy Bean in in the final game of this streak, he watches some baseball. He does. He's out. He's out in his car. He's ripping through parking lots. He isn't even listening to the radio. And then he gets this great call from his 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 ex wife and his daughter, um, and they congratulate him. But it's sort of phrased in a almost conciliatory or sort of just like whatever happens, honey. Just wanted to know you did great. And so you think that he's losing and that the streak is not going to happen. Uh-huh. And then he tunes into the radio, eleven to zero. They're up, right? That's the score or something. It's the fourth inning. Yeah, rules. So. He, whips it back to stadium to go watch and then you finally see Bennett Miller try his hand at actually crafting some baseball on the uh in the in front of the camera and I think this is an incredible baseball sequence I think baseball is is the most easily filmed sport because it's it's a it's a series of individual moments yeah you only need to pay attention to I mean again why it works the best on the radio is you just need to follow who has the ball and which direction it went in yeah um so yeah it's 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 easily it's it's easily televised it's easily choreographed but i think this is a an excellent baseball sequence and um i what are your thoughts on on the lighting of this where the sort of it's shrouded in 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 blackness because this was done for um uh for uh budgetary reasons because they couldn't film in oakland they had to film in dodger stadium um, so they had to hide what stadium it was. Um, but I think it also helps because each player so intimate. and each player looks so lonely. Yeah. Um, in, in a way that sort of, again, baseball is an individual sport disguised as a team sport. Um, each player must feel so isolated and alone. And, and when they are filmed with that sort of blank, that black backdrop, I think it's really effective. Um, yeah, I agree. No, it's a really powerful sequence, and it's really rewarding and gratifying after you've spent so much time in the basement of this baseball stadium to finally get at least a little bit of the imagery of like the baseball lights, which like to me is just such an iconic image of any baseball movie. At some point, has mm-hmm. the sort of the 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 tilt up and into the lens flare of the lighting. But I I agree. I think the these players, which the names have become. The names have become their own jargon for you as the viewer that you have heard them enough times and do have associations with them, even if none of them are particularly strong or important characters to the screenplay. It still is gratifying to see Hatterberg have success in the game or have success on his first run bat. And I, and I, I think we, we should say, and I, Chris Pratt is a sort of complicated figure. For me, I I don't like him now, and I think he's good in this. I think he's great in this. This is sort of this is a perfect early career Chris Pratt performance of he just is just sort of wide eyed terror and wonder. But um, with the the Kansas City Royals, who are the opponents of the A's, um, over the course of a a, a disastrous muted um, s- sequence, um, score eleven runs. To tie the game, yeah. And in the bottom of the ninth, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman seems to finally trust Billy Bean. Is the way that I 
sort of read this. And he looks at Scott Hatterberg and he tells him to go grab a bat because he's going to go pinch hit. And he comes up and he takes three pitches um, and hits a mammoth home run. And this, I think, is the first moment where you really feel the joy of baseball. And uh, I, I just, I love this sequence. I, I agree entirely. And it is because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman trusting Billy Bean. It is that moment where so many other baseball movies would choose to end on that virtue that's existed outside of the game gets rewarded in the game and romantic, divine, wonderful baseball rewards good behavior with a win. Yes. And it feels great. The, yes. This is, this is the emotional climax of this film. But it is not, and, it's, and, not the end. it's not and the end. Why the movie's great? I, I mean, it's it's why this movie becomes even greater than it's been before. Is the choice to linger and hang out for an extra twenty five minutes after this game to just sort of unspool what this season meant and what its legacy was. So, what uh, what happens? Where are we next? They lose in the playoffs. They lose in the play. They lose to the Twins. This movie does lose me for a brief second. Uh, the twins are on screen. Obviously, I'm going to root for the twins. So <laughs> that's that's petty, but uh, you know, Brad and Phil and Jonah, hats off to them. But I'm going to I'm going to just root for a piece of stock footage of twins over uh, two hours of extremely good performance any day. Unfortunately, <laughs> no fault of theirs. A, a horrible take because this is crushing. Because <laughs> it's crushing. This is you finally. This is in the previous moment. You like finally see the humanity in Philip Seymour Hoffman and in players like Chris Pratt, and you are fully on board with this team. And Billy Bean, in in immediately afterwards to Jonah Hill, is so convincing when he says, "This doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the championship, because this is the way that I truly. This is the way that I create my legend, is winning a championship." And then yeah. two minutes later, he does not resolutely does not win a championship um this is crushing yeah and you can already hear the chatter i think in the next scene they they're playing more like talk radio or sports radio bits of like well it was a cool experiment to try the money ball but it just doesn't beat the ball ball or whatever they say (laughs) but i think sorkin wrote that line it's not money ball it's ball ball (laughs) that's that sounds it's pretty aaron sorkin line pretty snappy yeah Mm -hmm. yeah you could say it walking down a hallway. <laughs> but nor nor do we stay in Oakland. Because Billy oh, Bean... To, he gets the job offer to go to Boston. And, and I, I love this scene. I think it is so important for what the legacy of Moneyball is going to be. I, I also want to talk about it in contrast with his first meeting with his owner. Because John yes. Henry, who's, plays the, uh, who's, who's the owner of, of the Red Sox... He looks like an owner, you know? He's elegantly dressed. He's got nice little glasses. Um, He's walking around the stadium like he owns it, you know? mm -hmm. He's got a secretary bringing in coffee. He brings him up to this box office seat. Like, it's all the... Whenever... I I think uh, when someone owns a piece of property in a business capacity, he can show it off like a club owner or something, can, like, bring you backstage or give you free drinks. Like, if you had a whole stadium to show off to someone... As the owner, I would do everything that he does in this scene. And I and I also like Fenway Park looks incredible. Yeah. It's a cathedral. It's 
it, this looks like the greatest job that anyone could ever have. And then he talks about his fluency with, with stats. He's hired Bill James, who's sort of the inspiration of the sabermetrics movement. And now he wants Billy Bean to come on and with real financial resources, do what he's always dreamed of, which is win that championship. And he, I think this is a great move from Sorkin to hold this back, but he slides him a piece of paper. And that's all we get. Have you ever been offered any amount of money via just piece of paper getting slid to you? This is my championship. This is what I dream of, is one day having someone, and it can be any amount of money. I can have someone, $7.19, if you slide it over to me in a piece of paper, I'm going to lose my shit i mean i'm I'm gonna play it cool because this is what's demanded of me but i will accept that offer i'm gonna write fuck you on a piece of paper the next time we're ever allowed to be in the same room together and pretend that it's a job offer i think you'll see through it immediately because the idea of me having a job offer for you is uh <laughs> absurd at bet i could offer you a job like fucking cleaning floors somewhere it's not <laughs> i'll ever have <laughs> uh i think the one if if you were really to break my heart in like seven months and like, hey, look, Spotify just came in with an acquisition offer. <laughs> it's going to be us and Joe Rogan up there. <laughs> um, but What if Joe Rogan is your boss? Would you take an offer if it entailed Joe Rogan? You take a, you take a high dollar money offer slid on a piece of paper to you from Joe Rogan? Oh, I'm okay with turning that one down. I still get the... As long as I get the piece of paper. Um, it, you can keep the piece of paper. I hope. It'd be a really weird dick move if they make you take the paper back if you don't take the offer. Um, do you know who Ricky Henderson is? No. He was a, a baseball player in the 70s and 80s who... Um, he was one of the great Oakland A's players who won a, who won a bunch of championships. But he, was, he spoke in the third person like... Broke the record for most stolen bases. He's one of the greatest guys ever. I love him. Anyway, um, his, when he signed with the A's, they gave him a $1 million signing bonus. And uh, a couple of months later, we're like going through their checkbooks, like making sure all the cash counted up. And uh, they noticed that like that check hadn't been cashed. And so they like drive to Ricky Henderson's house and like, Ricky, 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 what, what did you do with the check? Like we need to have like this is a million dollars out we're gonna yeah we, we need we need to know where this is oh it's, oh it's right there it's framed on my wall oh my god and i would <laughs> i would frame my my piece of paper with the seven dollars and 19 cents from the joe rogan podcast um i would frame that so billy bean refuses the offer from the red sox yes why do you think he does that so this is where i think my theory that this film is about divorce comes in because this entire this entire film he has been searching for an outlet to make him forget the failures of the past which i think are are his base his, his failed baseball career and his failed marriage um and here he has he finally has an, an option to to fully move on with his life and do something do something new but he just can't he can't and i don't think this is supposed to be tragic he realizes that he has responsibilities 
He has a daughter. He's got a protege. These are relationships that are more important than his professional development. Baseball is not this. I think this is the moment where he realizes that baseball is not important than life. And his life is his daughter and his friendship at this point with Jonah Hill. They are no longer colleagues. They're friends. This is the moment where Bennett Miller decides that he's not making a sports movie. Because the sports movie either ends with a championship or the executive going on to make bigger and better things. But he is choosing not to make a sports movie. And Billy Bean is choosing not to make a sports decision. He is, this, is a, this is a movie about a person. And he makes a personal decision to stay in the lives of the people that he cares about. I think that's, I mean, it happened in life. I don't know if that was his actual reasoning, but that's... I love it. I think that's a great, I think it's a perfect moment. Yeah, and I think it's a great take on the movie. And it it, it, it hands off directly to the, a very sorkin part, but one I still, hits me very hard and, and affects me a lot, is the, he shows footage of someone... So this was a real, this was a real college player... Um, who was profiled extensively in the book because he was drafted by the A's. Um, he was seen as um, sort of, he was a, a, a big husky kid who played catcher and was widely believed to be too fat um, to play catcher. But he took a lot of walks, and this is what the A's decided. And so they drafted him in the second round, where he was predicted to go in maybe the 15th. So they took him way ahead of where he was valued. Um, but in this specific moment, and they kind of make this up in the cut for for the movie but because he was a big slow guy they'd say he's he hits the ball and he's too afraid to run to second base because he's slow and he's afraid that he'll get thrown out at second base if he tries to stretch a single into a double and in this moment he hits the ball and he hits it real far and he thinks he can get to second base and he rounds the corner and he trips um and falls down and crawl and like without any dignity army crawls back to first base where then he's told that he in fact hit the ball over the fence it's a home run he can he can round the bases in peace and i think is and i love this i love this scene in the movie but i also love this clip of like a bunch of like college baseball goofballs like on the other team like patting him on the back and like waving him around the bases and like giving him high fives and it's again a moment that I think is beautifully human in in a sport that is often inhuman. But yeah, you you love this scene, so by all means, talk about it. Yeah, I mean, and then uh, it's this great exchange of Jonah Hill like as explaining to him, he's hit a home run, he doesn't realize it. And there's a little dead silence and Brad is kind of smirking at him and he says, how can you not be romantic about baseball? And Jonah Hill's like, it's a metaphor. Brad's like, I know it's a metaphor, which is <laughs> this movie's whole relationship with romanticism of baseball and Billy Bean's relationship of it is if you, even if you want to have revenge against romanticism that played you and has created failings in your life. And even if you find baseball fundamentally painful experience and want to invent and shepherd in the most cynical anti-romantic way to play baseball, it will still get to you. It will still affect you. It is still like a beautiful game that creates a lot of beautiful and emotionally affecting moments whether you want it or not. And that's why a convoluted kind of dumb game that is pretty regional and has only survived in North America, Latin America, and Japan, basically, 
and does not have the same universal appeal as soccer, basketball, hangs on in our hearts and, and probably will never go away. No, I, I think that is, I think this is the perfect encapsulation of the sport and of this movie. You, you simply cannot break baseball down into, into pure stats because that's not, that's just not the magic of it. Um, and it has an inherent magic that, that, that cannot be escaped no matter how hard we try. Truly. So that's the movie. His daughter plays him a song. He drives around some shipyards listening to the song. It's very sweet. And, and breaks down in tears. What a, what a fucking movie. What an ending. It's great. It's great. Brad is great. Jonah's great. Phil is great. The movie's great. A, a home run. A grand slam. This would be such a fun movie to review when it came out because you could just, just pepper <laughs> in all this. It's like, Brennan Miller strikes a grand slam. You wouldn't say strikes. You'd say hits a grand slam. But it's it's beautiful. It is such a beautiful movie. Yes. Is it a good adaptation? So is it a good adaptation? So there, there's one thread that I kind of want to talk about from that the book kind of hits on and the movie kind of hits on, but doesn't go fully explored, which is sort of the toxic creep that Moneyball has had in baseball. So before I answer, is it a good adaptation? I do want to address this. I think the fundamental, the most fundamentally important thing that happened out of the Moneyball movement was it reduced players from people with, you know, attributes that were valued or unvalued or whatever, purely to assets. Um, a security to be moved and traded and valued at a certain market rate. And I would say the biggest player in that movement was not the Oakland A's, but the Houston Astros, which is a pretty prominent team in baseball right now. So what happened is in 2011, which is nine years after the season where the book is about, the Houston Astros hires their general manager, a guy named Jeff Lunau, who's a former um, McKinsey consultant. And Jeff Lunau's whole ethos is going to be efficiency. Returning efficiency to the Houston Astros or a historically bad to mediocre team who have been a good occasionally, but mostly in the lower rung of baseball teams. And the way that he, the best way to make a good team is obviously to collect good players. And the best way to collect good players is to draft them very early in in the, the amateur draft. And the best way to get those really early draft picks is to be terrible. And so what the Houston Astros did was they traded away every good player that they had, and they became not just the worst team in baseball, but one of the worst teams in history for four years. Um, they ran uh, the lowest payroll in the major league, in the major leagues. Their highest paid player was at that point paid maybe two or $3 million a year, and most of them were making the major league minimum. Um, and with that, they collected a good young core of, of baseball players that they turned into superstars. So then the Astros were a decent team, and they decided that the next step in order to, to become a great team was to complement those good young players with older players that they thought they could help get back to their, to their best selves. And they did that. So they traded for a bunch of pitchers who immediately after getting to the Astros became the best versions of themselves that had been seen in years. Um, and there has been a lot of talk and suspicion that's not fully confirmed, but is unofficially confirmed, that the Astros uh, 
encourage their pitchers to illegally apply substances to baseballs um, to uh, make their fastballs go straighter and their breaking balls break harder. Um, which wow. is not the extent of their awfulness. In 2017, the Houston Astros won a World Series over the Los Angeles Dodgers. And in 2019, a, a former Astros player blew the whistle on what was called Operation Dark Arts, in which the Astros players, with the knowledge and cooperation of Jeff Lunau and his staff, installed this, a camera, a secret camera, in center field of their home ballpark that was trained on the catcher's hands as he would signal to the pitchers. And then they would relay that video feed to the Astros dugout, who would then uh, relay what a pitch was coming to the batter. Um, wow. Using that, and, and they used that scheme um, throughout the regular season and the playoffs and the World Series, uh, which again, they won. Um, Is there any recourse? Like, do they have to give back the trophy or the uh, find or anything? So what happened was, is that when this was revealed, Major League Baseball did an investigation. And in order to secure the cooperation of the players who led and who, who and who devised the scheme, um, offered them complete immunity. Um, but Jeff Lunau was suspended and fired, as well as the, um, the Astros on-field manager was suspended and fired. But effectively, it's it's widely accept, accepted that he will get another job in baseball in the next few years. And it gets worse. Um, the year after they won the World Series, a Toronto Blue Jays pitcher named Roberto Osuna was uh, arrested for domestic violence. He uh, beat up his girlfriend very badly. Uh, he went to jail. Uh, baseball, which was looking to crack down on this kind of player misbehavior at that time, suspended him. Uh, the Blue Jays suspended him and went public saying that he will never play for the Toronto Blue Jays again. Most of the other teams in Major League Baseball saw Roberto Osuna as absolutely untouchable. Um, he may have been an extremely tal talented pitcher, but he was a bad person who did not deserve his place in Major League Baseball. The Houston Astros used his arrest for uh, domestic violence as an opportunity for arbitrage in the same way that on-base percentage was a stat that was undervalued. Problematic players who are sure. violent or, or cheaters were seen as undervalued because, they're, because those issues made them cheaper. And so the Houston Astros traded for Roberto Osuna, who is still on the team and is still one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. Um, and I think that is sort of Moneyball's darkest legacy, is, is a, a, a complete disbelief in accountability, that an executive makes decisions based on his own his his own knowledge and determinations and doesn't have to answer to anybody but as long as the team is wins that none of that romanticism matters and that i think is the dark side of moneyball that doesn't really get addressed in either the book or the film that said is moneyball the 2011 film a successful adaptation absolutely this is an incredible 
I, I love this film. I think it's perfect. I also think that it is, it's not a faithful adaptation. There's a little, very little math or process or context. It is a character study about Billy Bean and what about Billy Bean is going to make him reject all of the common knowledge about baseball. And I think that is what film can do that a Michael Lewis book cannot, is really do a deep dive into the psychology of the people who are making interesting choices about capitalism. So yes, this is a successful adaptation. So watching this movie, I thought a lot about The Big Short, the other Michael Lewis adaptation that we've gotten in theaters. Mm -hmm. And I really respect and admire this movie even more thinking about it in comparison to that. And The Big Short is not a bad movie, but it is ultimately concerned with distilling and, and conveying all the arguments and knowledge in a Michael Lewis book into a digestible movie format. And this movie spends so little time on math or on analogies about it. And if it does, it's just a quick hand line. They talk about how their their card counters at a blackjack table. And it's an effective line. It, it explains the sort of underdog ethos of what Moneyball is going to be. And I just thought about how long that's like, that same one line would in the big short be some celebrity cameo be like Margot Robbie at a poker table. There is actually a scene at a poker table into the big short. Now that Mm -hmm. I think about it with uh, Selena Gomez. Yeah. So, no, I think this movie makes the right call. If you want the math, if you want to learn the money ball, the card counting system, just read the Michael Lewis book. And this movie doesn't detract from that or detract from how that math works or what makes it impressive. Mm -hmm. But it's about the characters, it's about the people, and it's about the it's just reading in between the lines of what that book was, was covering. No, I, I think that's right on. Have we had a really good baseball movie since this one? I guess 42 is after it, which I've never seen, but... I heard that was sort of a by-the-numbers biopic. Kind of biopic, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. What, what is your thought on sort of the canon of great baseball movies? Um... I like them, and I, but after having watched this, I wonder if it's because of the inherent romanticism in baseball that lends itself well to movies. I like Field of Dreams. I really like uh, A League of Their Own. A great, a great movie. That maybe is the most interesting thing about baseball movies is the farther they go from being about baseball, uh, and that's ultimately what's going to make them stronger. But there's plenty I haven't seen. I haven't seen Major League. I haven't seen Bad News Bears. Uh-huh. I like Major League a lot. Um which I think is mostly a buddy comedy posing as, I mean, it's about baseball, but not sort of similarly, not really. Uh, I love a league of their own, um, which is a family drama about baseball. I agree. I think purely baseball movies, I think are a little too saccharine for my taste. I don't like the natural very much. Um, I actually don't like field of dreams. I mostly just hate Kevin Costner. I hate his face. I hate his voice. I hate everything about him. I can't stand it. I hear you. Um, I hear you. No, I agree. I think this is, I think this might be the best baseball movie. I would say so. I mean, I want to rewatch some, you know, to maybe confirm that view, but what's on my mind recently, totally the best baseball movie for me. And I saw it in theaters when it came out and I just, I remember thinking it was good, but not really. This is like, it kind of went over my head because I think I was in middle school or something when I saw it and revisiting it, an absolute gem. And, and one, I think that doesn't get talked about enough and is a, it's great it's great i don't know why it's not a bigger deal as a movie is this the best brad pitt performance he's magnificent 
He is magnificent. I it is a top tier Brad Pitt performance. I, I don't agree. think I can rank. I cannot rank Brad Pitt performances, but I can definitely say there are tiers of them, and this is a top tier performance. Top tier performance. Yeah, he's incredible. I love this. I mean, I love this movie. I love Brad Pitt. I can watch this movie forever. <laughs>